I was looking out for you. I knew you wouldn't be able to preach this week. If you have your Bibles and you would like to, please turn to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. As you turn there, let me pray. Almighty God, eternal and compassionate, whose word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, open and enlighten our hearts that we may understand purely and clearly your words. May they transform us according to this exact understanding that we may never be displeasing to your divine majesty. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Well, now that Chris is back and you have somewhere you can direct all of your complaints, let's start something really controversial, all right? There is something wrong with the world. No? Not controversial, is it? In fact, that's the universal experience of all mankind. This world is not the way it should be. But we cannot fully appreciate this reality, nor the solution without knowing how the world got in this state in the first place. As we spend the next nine weeks, which we will do, considering how and why the Son of God took on flesh, we need to go back to the beginning. When we do, we begin with our text tonight. Because the reason the world is the way that it is, is found in Genesis 3. The story of the fall of Adam and Eve is not a theoretical thought exercise. It is not an analogy. It is not a fable or a cautionary tale. This is history. And this is God's own explanation for why our world is the way it is and why you and I are the way that we are. And yet, it contains a hint of the hope that we have for redemption from this fallen estate. There is a universal sense in all people that this world is not as it should be. And our roots of discontent and the longing in us for a better world, the roots of those things lie in our passage. Why do human beings die? Genesis 3 tells us. Why is work difficult? Genesis 3 tells us. Why is nature hostile to human life? Why do we hurt the ones we love the most? Why do we suffer when we are emotional and mental pain? Why are we alienated from God when we are made in his image? And Genesis 3 tells us, by one man, through Adam's sin against the Lord, this world and everything in it fell under a curse. So tonight, our task is to walk through the text and observe what it tells us about temptation, sin, the effects of both, and what solution there is. As we do, I divided it up into four acts in this story. The snare prepared, the sin perpetrated, the shalom polluted, and the seed promised. That's the outline you'll find in the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Kids, look at the normal place for the words for you to listen to. So first, the snare prepared. Let me read again verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we're in God's good garden with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and Satan, that ancient serpent, comes on the scene. And he's here, he's going to work to undermine the peaceful paradise where God is dwelling at peace with his image bearers, as they dwell at peace with one another. And Satan does this first by attacking their belief in God's word. We see from the serpent's first words to Eve that temptation always requires a grain of truth. It wouldn't be believable if there wasn't a little bit of truth in it, but it never fully exposes the truth. Look at verse 5. He tells Eve that by eating the fruit, they will be like God and their eyes will be opened. Now it is true. If they eat this fruit, their eyes will be opened. In fact, that's what verse 7 tells us. He knew, in one sense, the difference between good and evil. They knew this from the command of God. That knowledge was sufficient for them. And they did not need to disobey that command to complete that knowledge. And even more, they were already like God. God had made them in his image. Adam and Eve had the highest office in all of creation, higher than all of the other creatures that God had made. So what more could they need? So temptation starts with that little bit of truth. But we see it's also progressive. It always begins with undermining God's word. The serpent begins with, did God say? Did he really say? And he has to start here because the root of all sin is in unbelief. It's no different today than it was in paradise. The question is whether we will submit ourselves to God's word and believe it. Because if not, we'll believe any kind of lie. We'll be like those that Paul speaks about in the first chapter of Romans that will exchange the truth of God for a lie. Like Adam and Eve, we are not given God's full reasoning on any number of things. But like Adam and Eve, we are called to believe and obey anyway. So the next step, the little subtle question, undermining God's word, and then the serpent flips God's blessing into what looks like a curse. Adam and Eve had been given all kinds of food. The command was, eat anything you want except this one tree. In Hebrew, there, there aren't these punctuation marks and, or really adverbs to help note emphasis. And so that's often used, that, that emphasis is often shown through repetition of certain words. So in God's instruction to Adam in Genesis 2.16, that repetition is first used in describing what they could eat. God literally says, you may eat, eat. Eating you may eat. Eat whatever you want. God is giving abundantly and unsparingly to his creatures, providing for their needs. And yet, the serpent turns Eve's focus away from all that God had provided 
to the one prohibition he had given. And even that prohibition, it was for their good. The warning attached to that prohibition has that same repetition. God says, in the day you eat it, you shall die, die. Surely you will die. Dying you will die if you eat this this fruit from this tree. Because God's law is not arbitrary. It's not capricious. It's actually in keeping with his character, which is holy, within which we, his image bearers, can flourish. So then the serpent moves to his closing argument. So he undermines, turns her attention away from God's goodness, and then he moves to outright contradiction of God's word. He says, you shall not die, die. You shall not surely die. And then he undermines God's authority. In fact, you'll be like God. That's why he doesn't want you to eat the fruit. What began with a question ended with a blatant denial of God's word. Oh, brothers and sisters, beware a subtle question. And Eve's response does not defeat the tempter, in part because she inaccurately quotes God's word. So there are some who here see Eve as the first legalist, because she adds a prohibition that wasn't given earlier. She said, God said, do not even touch the fruit. I'll come back to that in a minute. Then she lessens the punishment. She doesn't use that emphasized die, die. She only says it once. Well, if God says if we eat this fruit, we'll die. So if it is true that she's adding a prohibition here that God didn't give, then we need to observe that legalism, our own added laws, our wisdom that prevents us from going here, doesn't save us from sin. There may be times that it is wise for us to avoid temptation by putting boundaries around certain areas. But if we say this is God's law, then we have added to God's law and we've undermined his word ourselves. God does not need our assistance in supplementing his word or undermining what he threatens. His word is to be obeyed and believed as he has given it to us. Now, it could be, and I'm undecided, could be that the prohibition to even touch the fruit is actually included because this is a sin. Don't even come close to it. It could be this isn't legalism. But what we see is that even if it is not an added law, merely knowing the law is not enough to keep us from sin. We do not reason with temptation, and we surely do not confront temptation by misusing God's word. So here are a couple applications from this point. Uh, For those of us who have placed our trust in Christ, we know temptation is coming. How are we going to overcome it? Only by trusting in God's word, in the good promises that he has given us, will we overcome temptation. Because we live in a fallen world and we experience suffering in our lives. If Eve was temptable in paradise, how much more each of us in our fallen estate. We should be on guard at all times.
Second, is there anything you are adding to God's law? Because as I said, legalism will not, it cannot save you from sin. Only faith in Christ and dependence on Him and His Holy Spirit can do that. If we see our own additions as equal to God, what God permits or prohibits, how valuable do we think His Word is in the first place? Finally, as we see, there is a warning to be heeded from these verses. God keeps His Word. Those who break His law will receive the due punishment. All right, so the snare has been set. The trap is there. Now let's turn our attention to the sin itself. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We must understand that at its core, sin is rebellion. And by twisting and lying about his word. Even further, he's rebelling against God's representatives in the garden. Those who are God's image bearers on this earth. But Satan's rebellion is different than man's rebellion. For one, it, it doesn't have those cosmic effects on all of creation that Adam's sin will have. Because neither the serpent itself nor Satan who is working through it is God's image bearer, the one representing God in the world. For Eve, the rebellion of her sin comes about that in being deceived, she gives in to temptation. Because she listened and believed the serpent rather than the word of God, she stopped seeing the fruit for what it actually was, death. Instead, she set herself up over God and his word to judge for herself what is right and wrong. When Jesus was asked to sum up the law, how did he do it? He said, you shall love God and love your neighbor. And here in this first sin, Eve fails on both accounts. And in our church, in our theological tradition, we really like being precise about theology. So here, here's another lesson we can learn from this. We, we like to think and talk about words and definition and be, be precise. What Eve shows us here is that assenting to the definition of a sin does not give us power to avoid it. Just because we say, yes, this is a sin, doesn't mean that we won't commit it. Think, think about your life. Think about the things that you do that you know are wrong. You don't do it because you disagree with God that it's wrong, at least intellectually. This is because we're not only thinking creatures. We are embodied beings with appetites and desires and love. So sin, while it is rooted ultimately in unbelief, not believing God's word, it's an expression out of our disordered love. So think about how ingenious the temptation is. The serpent begins by planting the seeds of unbelief, getting Eve to question God's word. But then he appeals to her pride, tempting her to presume that she could become God's equal. And then 
Eve's desire was awakened and she's caught in the tempter's snare. In this moment, Eve is loving herself more than God. She fulfilled the desire of the flesh. She saw it was good for food. The desire of the eyes. The fruit was a delight to the eyes. And the pride of life. It was desired to make one wise. In fact, in in the face of this deception, even the command not to touch it doesn't help her. Because the deception caused in her a fear of missing out. Almost as if she said, why should I care whether I die? What is life without tasting this fruit? And all of that adds up to her violation of the law to love God. And then the scripture says, and she gave to the husband who was with her. She also did not love her neighbor as herself. She didn't keep this sin to herself. She didn't immediately turn away to prevent it from spreading to others. Her first inclination was to spread it to the nearest and dearest. At this point, you may be thinking, I read the title. The title of the sermon is By One Man. And so far, all you've mentioned is a talking snake and a woman. If so, you're following along with exactly what Moses wants us to be thinking. Moses, who wrote Genesis. While all this is happening, where is Adam? What is he doing? He was the one to have dominion over creation. In fact, he's the one that gave the serpent its name. Adam, not Eve, was the original recipient of the command, the keeper of God's word. He was the original prophet of God, receiving God's word and declaring it to his fellow image bearers. He was the original priest in God's temple garden with the charge to work and to keep the garden. The same words that are given to the Levitical priests later in the tabernacle. Adam was the king, the Lord's vice regent, whose job was to execute God's justice in the world in keeping with God's law. And as a husband, he was called to protect his wife. He was to love and to cherish his wife. And the truth is, Unlike his wife, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, he was not deceived. His act was utter, willful rebellion. And in this, he failed his vocations, both as husband and keeper of the garden. When he ate the fruit, he did exactly what he knew he was not to do. And in this act, he was the covenant representative, standing for all of mankind to follow him. We know this because Hosea 6, 7 tells us, but like Adam, they, meaning Israel, transgressed the covenant. So when Adam acted here, he was not acting on his behalf alone. This time in the garden was a test which he failed for himself and for all his posterity to follow. And Romans 5, which we heard in our New Testament reading, it tells us how that sin affected all of us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We might bristle at the implication of this representation. 
We might be tempted to think, this is, this is unfair. This is unjust for Adam to represent me. But in reality, this is at the heart of all Christian doctrine. Because if imputation is unfair, then we cannot be saved by Christ's work. And by arguing against how God set up this covenant relationship, we're committing the same level of rebellion and unbelief as Adam, because God's word has revealed this. So we show ourselves that we're actually well represented by his failure. We would do the same, probably a lot sooner if you're like me. Plus, if we're honest, when we look around, the world that we inhabit looks a whole lot like what God says the Genesis 3 world will look like. So when Adam fails as covenant representative, there are several implications for all of his descendants that would follow. Since the fall, we are all born dead in sin and trespasses. We are all naturally, by nature, God's enemies. And as such, we do not seek God or desire to love him or our neighbor. And even further, the whole creation itself is awaiting the adoption of the sons of God, groaning under the curse from this one man's disobedience. So, is this really all about a mid-afternoon snack? And we can answer, as you probably have heard me say many times, yes and no. Yes, from Adam and Eve's perspective. And that's why it's so foolish. They weren't hungry. They weren't deprived. They could have easily shrugged off the serpent and found something else to eat. Or better, Remove the snake from the garden for its rebellion against God's word. They would have lost nothing in doing that. And yet they allowed themselves to elevate this one thing to an ultimate level. This is the root of idolatry. But in another sense, from God's perspective, no, not just a mid-afternoon snack. This is about far more than a piece of fruit. By directly disobeying God, they were committing an act that R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason. What we read here is, are the first bearers of God's image, aligning themselves with God's enemy, making themselves enemies rather than friends of God. They abdicated their calling to care for creation and to love each other, and instead they abused creation and provoked each other to sin. So it's about far more than just the fruit. Perhaps you have also believed the serpent's lie. Perhaps you don't love God's law. Perhaps you look at it and you think God's rules are outdated, they're silly, they're unnecessary. But if so, what standard do you seek to live by? What standard do you hold others to, expecting them to live up to? And do you always meet your own standards? I know the answer is no. If not, how can you pass judgment on God's standard? 
God is the omnipotent creator of the universe, and he has every right to demand from his creatures whatever he wants. And as I said, his law reflects his own character, which he cannot deny. So if if we were to question God's law, where does the wisdom come from to give us better insight in the first place? That's the same thing Eve was after. Wisdom and equality with God. So friend, denying the demands of God's law will only lead you down the path of death. And Christians, you know we're not exempt from this. In what ways do you still set yourself up over God's word to judge? Oh yeah, I agree with that one. not, Not this one. Surely he can't mean that. Or what temptations do you face that cause you to doubt his word? That cause you to pursue your own sinful desires? The call for all of us is to repent and to submit ourselves to God's word. So our first parents gave in to the temptation. And immediately the shalom of creation began to unravel as a result. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Immediately, their eyes were opened and the serpent was right. They knew the difference between good and evil. But this knowledge was not like God's knowledge of good and evil. Their knowledge condemned them. For the first time in their lives, they had something to hide from each other and from God. Sin always brings shame and condemnation. It causes us to be ashamed before other people. Nothing about Adam and Eve had physically changed since back in chapter 2 when they were naked and unashamed, the only difference now is that they were sinners and they knew it. They knew they had sinned against each other as well as against God. So when God came to walk in the garden, they couldn't even face him. But their shame drove them to hide. Instead of seeking help from God, They perpetuated the problem by attempting to address this shame themselves. Their fig leaf, loincloth, Pinterest project is a perfect illustration of how pathetic self-righteousness truly is. Isn't it? They were not removing the root problem. They're simply covering over it and pretending it's not there. And it shows they're not grasping the depth of the consequences of their sin. God ends up having to kill an animal to cover them properly. On a practical level, 
They haven't realized what, the, what effect their sin would have on creation. Instead of being a paradise in a home, it's going to turn against them. What are fig leaves going to do in a hurricane? On a relational level, they could no longer be vulnerable with one another because they've sinned against each other. They each know their own culpability and their need for justification. And likewise, they each know the stain of being sinned against and the need of expiation from the shame of being sinned against, to be, the need of that to be washed away. And then when they hear God, they realize the leaves aren't enough, so they go into the trees, into the forest. They hide rather than to come forward and confess and repent. The result of their attempts to be like God is that the perfect fellowship they had had with God is severed by their action. The text says, literally says, they hid from God's face. They had enjoyed perfect communion face to face with God, and now that's shattered. And Adam's explanation is that they hid from the first experience of fear. I mean, can you only imagine the transition from perfect security and wholeness to fear, that, that most visceral emotion of all? And yet that is the proper response. Those who know their sin and their frailty before God are right to fear a holy a just God. Scripture continually repeats the refrain that those who do not fear God are foolish. And this sin is going to bring all of creation down with it. To this point, Adam and Eve had experienced nothing but shalom, that peace, that wholeness, that wellness. They experienced it with each other, with themselves, and with all of creation. The first sin broke that perfection of all physical, emotional, and spiritual health. Sin's effects are all-encompassing, right down to our bodies. Each experience that we have rebellion and sickness and suffering is a branch firmly rooted in this rebellion of Adam against his creator. This is the first phase of the death threatened by God. The man and the woman... At this point, they're out of communion with God and they fear Him rather than love Him. They experience only broken relationship with each other and the entire creation is affected by their actions because at this point, they are now spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins just as all of their descendants would be. Their impending physical death is just as sure as their present spiritual death at this point. They're going to live the rest of their days exiled from the garden, waiting for the physical reality to catch up to the spiritual one. And God calls out to them. Not, not to be apprised of Adam's whereabouts, as if he didn't know, but drawing Adam out to confront him about his sin. The fact that there is a discussion at this point at all is very merciful on God's part. You realize that, right? God would be justified in killing Adam and Eve right then and there, no questions asked. That was the promise attached to the prohibition. But don't we also see here just a clear mockery of the serpent's promise that they would be like God? It's as if, it's as if God is saying, Adam, 
If disobeying my command made you like me, come stand face to face as my equal. Adam's fear proves that the serpent lied. Their sin did not make them like God. Adam's response is true, technically, but it's incomplete. He gave the reason that he's hiding, but he does not confess his sin. Again, God's not ignorant of what happened earlier that day. He was directly confronting Adam about his sin and calling him to confess. Speaking directly to the man. Because Adam is the covenant head, representing his wife and all of his descendants. And sin's effects are crystal clear even before God's sin curses. We see this in Adam's response regarding his first sin. He first attempts to blame the woman. Instead of confessing his abdication as covenant head. And in this response of Adam is the seed of every misogynistic thought, every sexual assault, every subjugation of women. The last time Adam had spoken about his wife, it was in a love poem, praising her because she was the only suitable partner for him. But now, he uses her as a scapegoat to deflect from his own sin. Not loving his neighbor. And then he had the audacity to blame God. That woman you gave me. He told the truth technically, but in a self-justifying way. He wasn't loving God. He was explicitly guilty here of violating both facets of God's law. Eve's response isn't much better. She also tells a half-truth while attempting to self-justify going so far as to blame the animal that she was to help rule over. And we all inherit the same rationale as a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve. We come up with all kinds of ways to excuse ourselves, to cover up our sin. Who do you try to shift blame to for your failure? Many of us also, all of us in in some way, some of us more deeply than others, we've experienced that shame of being sinned against and the shame that that carries. And we must learn from Adam and Eve that we cannot make ourselves clean and whole. We are helpless to erase sin and its effects, whether it's our sin or anyone else's. So to this point, We've considered how sin and shame came into the world by the disobedience of one man. Adam broke covenants, and God draws the confession out of him. He's been found guilty by the judge, and only the sentencing remains. There appears to be no hope. Which is why the next statement is so extraordinary. Adam could never have expected God's next words. They're commonly known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And if anybody, aside here, if anybody ever tells you that the God of the Old Testament is the one that judges and he's mean and he's vindictive and the God of the New Testament is all loving and all kind, they have never read the Old Testament. And they've never read the New Testament, for that matter. Look at God's grace. There would be consequences in the form of curses coming to Adam and Eve. But even before declaring those, 
If man liberates and salvation by his own hand. If man did not avoid sinning when created perfect and upright, placed in the garden, given explicit instructions on what to do, we have no hope of saving ourselves. Deliverance must come from somewhere else. And that's precisely what God says will happen. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the offspring, between you and the woman, and between your offspring or your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God's first response to this, seem, this, this sin, it, it may seem odd. He curses the serpent without even a question. Because God knew here the evil intention and the work of Satan, and he's taking decisive action against him. In, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter speaks of how the angels long to look into the gospel. And one of the reasons is because when the first angel sinned, there wasn't another chance. There was judgment and that was it. There was no gospel for them. So Satan here is getting judgment. The tempter sought to destroy God's creation. But this temporary victory, God says, will not stand. Satan's judgment is final. There is no room for him to repent. The curse of the serpent is that his head will be crushed. And these words give hope to us all. The enmity between the serpent and man the seed of the woman, it's a blessing from God. Because Adam had allied himself with the serpent over against God. He became an enemy of God himself. And the Lord here is breaking that alliance for the seed and for all whom he would represent. The seed is going to defeat the serpent and his victory will once and for all bring restoration to those united to him. He's going to do this by giving up his life. That's the picture of being struck on the heel by a venomous snake. But that will crush the snake's head, overcoming the enemy and all that he had brought through tempting Adam to sin. The seed is Christ. Christ, the second Adam. And he would set men free through his vicarious death on their behalf. Where Adam failed... Christ succeeded, and he not only restores us back to Eden, but he carries us into eternal life, the life that Adam would have had if he would have obeyed. So consider a few ways in which Christ's person and work relates to what we see in the fall. I'm sure there are many I left out you can think of. Where the serpent was crafty, the devil is the father of lies, Jesus is the source of all truth, and he is truth himself. In his temptation, Jesus did not give in to the temptation to not believe God's word, but he modeled belief in God's word. He used God's word to defeat the devil and showed us how it is an escape from sin. Adam and Eve believed the serpent and they counted being like God as the highest good. They tried to exalt themselves. But Christ, who is God, did not consider that something to be grasped, but humbled himself even to death. Entire moral law to save us. 
Christ kept the entire moral law. He perfectly loved his heavenly father as well as his neighbor. And through faith in him, his righteousness is credited to our accounts. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the perfect and great high priest, and the king of kings who succeeds in all those vocations where Adam failed. Adam stood by and let his wife be deceived and then tried to shift blame to her to justify his own sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ warns and protects and cherishes his bride because he gives up his own life to atone for her sin. Adam earned a curse and death and all those who are in him inherit both. And Christ earned blessings and life and all those in him inherit both by faith even as he takes their own curse on himself. And his victory over sin and death breaks the power of both so that we can now live to please God. And we have hope of life forever in perfect communion with God and his people. Christ was sinned against by his own people, but he despised the shame it brought. And Adam's sin introduced every type of sickness, disease, and death. And Jesus not only bore our sins, but our griefs, our sorrow, our disease, and overcame them all to restore us to shalom. All the rest of redemptive history, everything we're going to see in the next eight weeks, is an unfolding of this glorious promise, a sacrificial death that breaks the serpent's power. Romans 5, 18 to 21 sums it up. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where does that leave us? East of Eden, this side of the fall. God's word declares that each of us have transgressed his law. And if you're honest, your own conscience bears witness about this. Even if you think very little of God's standards of morality, you do not live up to your own standards or the standards you wish others would live up to. We all love ourselves more than our neighbor, more than creation, more than God himself. We stand condemned by a holy God, sentenced to death. We have done and what we have done. We ourselves are guilty in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We hate God's law in and of ourselves. We are naturally God's enemies. And we look around and we see nature itself groaning under the weight of the effect of sin. We see, see and we feel its effects day in and day out. Every one of us knows this world is not the way it should be. We long for a world at peace and harmony with itself and with its creator. We suffer from broken relationships with the shame associated with sins committed against us. We are all broken physically and mentally, emotionally and spiritually, and we long for restoration. We long to be made whole. 
And Genesis 3 tells us we are here because of Adam's sin. So where is your hope? Are you trusting your own efforts? Are you trying to keep your own version of morality? Hoping God will accept you because you're good or at least better than your neighbor? Are you seeking to overcome that brokenness that you feel and to put yourself back together by your own efforts? Or is your hope in restoration, of restoration in, in mankind's collective efforts? Sure, if we get all of sinful man together, they can figure it out, right? All of our self-justifications and our atonement attempts are less than fig leaves trying to hide ourselves before a God who is an all-consuming fire. Our only hope is to turn away from everything else and to the one who knew no sin and yet for our sake became sin. The God who cleanses his people by the washing of water and the word. By this man's obedience, this one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So may we all turn away from our worthless idols, from every attempt at self-justification and trust in the glorious seed who crushed the serpent's head through his perfect obedience, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection. Because he has borne away all our shame. He is making all things new. And one day he will return to consummate his eternal kingdom. That is our blessed hope. So let us trust and rest in him as we look for his coming. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may that be so. May we see all of our sin and all of our righteousness for what it is, filthy rags before you. May we place our hope in Jesus Christ alone, for he is our only hope. And may we leave this place assured of your love for us in him. You have fulfilled the promise that you gave to our first father and mother. Lord, by your spirit, give us hearts that love you and love your word. And move us out from here to give that message to others who are dying apart from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.